Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is Lance Robertson, the co-host of the Culture Surfing Podcast, where we navigate the channels of the NBA and the hip-hop culture. Uh, I, along with Noe Aaron Eva, are going to be talking about the Brooklyn Nets, along with a special guest today, and we'll get with him shortly. Noe, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, man. I'm glad to be back on the mic. Glad, glad to be getting some content out. The team we're talking about today is by far one of the more entertaining teams going into next season, so I'm excited to talk about this today for sure. All right, sweet. So no further ado, the man of the hour, hour 30, however long we uh, feel we need to go on this uh, team, uh, Dan Favalli. So deputy <laughs> editor of NBA Math, Bleacher Report writer, and as we t- uh, talked to him earlier, one of the greatest uh, intro spewers of all time for a podcast, the NBA uh, Hardwood Knox Pod. Once again, Dan Favalli. How's it going, man? Um, I'm doing well. Thank you for the kind words with the intro. You might be one of the first person, might be the first person ever to compliment that. So I very much appreciate it. How are you guys doing today? Marvelous. We're just, uh, we're happy you could be here. Uh, I know you just got done talking about the Nets, I believe, a week or two ago. So I'm sure you're you're pretty uh, hyped to talk about them again. <laughs> They're the team you can't stop. One of the teams that you can't stop talking about right now. They're just so combustible. They're polarizing, I guess is the word. Yeah. Um, hopefully we could talk more so about their on court, uh, things rather than off court, weird podcast comments that they, uh, star players make, you know, cause I honestly think at this point in time, I'm tired of hearing or reading Kyrie quotes. I just want to see him actually play. And, you know, I'm just happy to, you know, see KD on the court soon, but yeah, let's, uh, let's just get right into it. Some very shocking news. And I mean, I'm saying this and we just heard about Daryl Morey, you know, to the, the Sixers not too long ago, but Steve Nash signing a deal to be the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. And then Mike D'Antoni signing on to be an assistant coach. But yeah, so D'Antoni hiring, uh, was pretty shocking along with the uh, Amari Stoudemire hiring as well. It just looks like uh, the seven seconds, or less sons are, are back in Brooklyn over here. Um, I just, let's just put it like this, Dan, on a scale of one to, oh my goodness, Anthony Bennett just got drafted number one overall. How excited are you? And shocked. <laughs> I don't even, yeah, shocked would be the word. I'm like very curious. And I think, you know, for people like us, there are moves that are going to shock us more so than like actual league insiders. But if you like even ask them, this was one of the moves that caught most of them off guard. And it's just, you know, Steve Nash is a brilliant basketball mind. We know he has the ties with Kevin Durant, was apparently a sounding board when he decided to go to Golden State. They worked out together there. And I think they were even working out together before that. It's still just like, he wasn't on anyone's coaching radar. And then it's compounded by the fact that you have Kyrie talking about how this is basically more of like a collaboration than having a head coach. And look, on some level, everything's a collaboration in the NBA, but you don't have your players coming out and saying, well, we don't really have a head coach. And that might rankle you normally, but because Steve Nash is a first time coach, it's like, well, that kind of makes sense. And now you're stacking, you have Mike D'Antoni there, like, um, so there's at least that veteran voice on the sidelines, and he is kind of stacked when you're looking at his assistants, although the Amari Stoudemire hire was like that. I'm very interested to see how that goes as well. There's just so much about this team that I think is curious and could be construed as shocking. But I think for me, that was not someone I figured on them going with. You would you assume that they were gonna get a big name, but they were gonna probably target a big name with some experience just because that's the level of expectations that they're dealing with is we don't know what um, KD is going to look like next year. We don't even know 
how many games that Kyrie is going to be available for, but their window was finite. Like they went all in on this model. That's why Kenny Atkinson isn't there because they didn't think that he was, uh, I guess the right fit win now for them. And so now you're saddling those expectations onto a first time head coach who, yeah, he's probably going to have a, a better relationship with your star players than any other candidate, including your previous head coach and Kenny Atkinson. But there's, there's combustibility there. As I just mentioned at the top, like if you start off slowly, people are going to be questioning that decision. How does Kyrie react to that? Uh, and then the stuff that we're going to look for, like substitution patterns, you know, plays outside of timeouts, the, the Nets defense, which has historically overachieved under Kenny Atkinson. And it's a team right now that just doesn't have a lot of good defensive players. There's just so many layers to this, but I think this is a long-winded answer of me saying that Steve Nash getting hired by the Nets as the head coach, not in just some capacity, but as the head coach was just unequivocally. Yeah, so to shocking. your point about, you know, not really having experience, the only thing that we have on paper to go by, and it's not even coaching, it's uh, Steve Nash being a player development consultant for the Warriors during uh, Kevin Durant's time, which is, I guess, where the relationship began to blossom. But... In a time, and you know, I've, I know this has kind of already been talked about, but you know, you kind of got to mention in a time where obviously there, there's a lot of African American coaches that are out on a job, haven't got a job, maybe like a, a position, like a chance. And Steve Nash comes in and gets this position. It's kind of like, well, we get it. He's a star. He was a star player, but he literally has no coaching experience. And you know, and like you said, he's a great basketball mind, but it's just, it's just, kind of hard to sell except for player relationship wise it makes all the sense in the world right and his temperament of you know being easy uh easy going guy i mean i'm not gonna say he's gonna just be a coach that just rolls the ball out until Kyrie and katie just do whatever you want to do but i really think it's gonna be a and when i say free-flowing offense i mean maybe not a lot of sets drawn up for them and whatnot uh noe what do you have to say about this very odd but very fun and, and controversial um, coach hiring. So like we all have this idea of what the team building theory is, right? And then we have the Nets. It's not necessarily exactly what you would think would be the uh, normal path to success, right? Like they're definitely doing this their own way. And, you know, with it being a franchise that, hasn't been relevant for a while, you know, and they've had some seasons that have been pretty decent here recently. Right. But they, they're able to get these two star players and it almost feels like that front office is just so thankful they're there. And they were like, yeah, man, bring in whoever you want. And then Katie was like, Hey, you know, I like Steve Nash when I was at golden state. Well, what about him? You know? And it's like, sure. If that's who you want, why not? You know? And, and then boom, Steve Nash, head coach, Brooklyn Nets. And then, you know, the Amari thing, I'm, I have no idea how that worked out other than obviously, they, you know, they have a personal relationship. When D'Antoni became available and when I found out that he was going to the Nets, that actually made a whole lot of sense to me um, because you do need some experience. You do need, you know, somebody that's going to be able to step in and, and provide quality feedback to the brand new head coach with no experience. Right. And then, of course, they've already had that relationship in the past. So. That all said, I actually kind of like the way I think it should work. Um, Steve Nash, as we all know, is probably one of the highest IQ players that we ever watched play in the last couple of decades. He also, you know, has a great relationship with KD, which go, will go a long way as far as, you know, team chemistry goes. So 
I'm actually not too concerned about it. I actually feel like it could really the, the one thing that I am worried about is kind of like Dan mentioned was the defense um, because, you know, they don't Stoudemire is probably the best defensive coach they have, I guess. <laughs> like, you know, that's, <laughs> like Dan Tony's not coming to teach him. I mean, by just by size, yeah, I guess uh, he would be. That's what but... I'm saying. Like Dan Tony's not coming to coach defense, and Nash is not known for defensive prowess. And you know that the current roster, as it's currently built, granted that this team has a lot of ability to move pieces. So I don't think what we're what we have currently is what we will see on the court once things really get going. But at the very moment, I don't, you know, the defense is probably the biggest concern. Offensively speaking, I think they're going to be just fine. They're playing in the East, so that's already a big advantage night in and night out because they don't have to bust their butts every game, right? Like they can come in and use some of those some of those games against some of the weaker competition to kind of establish some rhythm offensively, you know, some cohesiveness with the two stars. That's probably going to be the biggest thing because obviously as long as you have Kevin Durant on your team and Kyrie Irving on your team, even if Kevin Durant's, 85% of old Kevin Durant, it's still plenty of offense. So it's just really going to be figuring out what they're going to be defensively or if they care to play defense, right? Or Because if they're going old Phoenix Suns, you know, they're just going to outscore everybody, then I guess they could try that. But I actually – I'm curious to see how it's going to go. But I, I overall am – I don't hate the hires um, other than the Stoudemire one, which I don't really understand. But other than that, I, I really don't hate the hires. I think that – that it could work. So I just want to quickly uh, interject about uh, maybe some defensive uh, or just, yeah, some defensive coaching thoughts. I mean, there's still Jacques Vaughn on the roster, and it, it really felt like the Nets went to war for him, the players that is, when they could have easily just packed it up. You know, they didn't have any other star players. And, I mean, they, they still fought it out, you know. So I'll give them that. Uh, I'd say maybe right now he's probably the soul of the coaching staff. I, get, I don't think that's too crazy to say. I mean, but other than that, uh, yeah, it's just, it's probably going to be what bottom 10, like bottom 10 defensive team. Maybe I'm being too harsh on that, but I just don't see if, especially if they're trading certain players away, which I think is going to ultimately happen. You know, DeAndre Jordan is nowhere near what he used to be in the Lob City era. So, yeah, I, I just don't see. Uh, player personnel wise, who's going to be that uh, defensive stopper? Um, but anyways, uh, speaking of trades, the one name that keeps getting linked to this team, Dan, and I just don't understand it. I understand it from like he's a star, and it's 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 New York, so it makes sense for it, it to happen. It's just not the Knicks. But Bradley Beal, does the Nets really have enough to do a deal? For Beal? I think if the Wizards are actually willing to trade him, that they could cobble together something good. Uh, I mentioned this to you off the air. If you wanted to roll the dice on a, a semi-distant Brooklyn first-round pick, like if they're willing to give up 2023 or 2025 and it's loosely or unprotected, I don't know if Sean Marks would do that, but that's something that you can absolutely roll the dice on just because Kyrie and KD can be free agents again in, in two years, and we don't know what either of them are going to look like during that time. But also just between Dimwitty and Karis LeVert, that's probably more of a win-now package, but you have Jared Allen – um, you have Kuroots, you have the immediate first round picks that you could offer. So there might be lower end prospects, but you have these higher impact guys where the Wizards are probably still going to have John Wall in that scenario. So maybe they're sort of interested in hovering around the middle. Um, and, and Karis LeVert's under contract for, I think, another three years after this one at, at good value. So the Wizards could easily talk themselves into that as well. 
Um, or you can go out and you could suss out a third team because Dinwiddie um, and or Levert, like those are pieces that other teams will be willing to give up uh, stuff for because they're impact players. So I do think they have enough to get involved in some capacity, but I do think you also mentioned the the real question, which is how much would he help? Because there is a, there's a merit to the thinking of, well, we don't know how many games that Kyrie and KD are going to be, w- be playing together. So we could use another star on offense to lift us up on those nights where if we say the over under on the nights where we're going to have, let's say two stars in the lineup is 35. And maybe some people still take the under that Kyrie and Katie will play in 35 games together that you need that other presence to, to lift you up and you don't view it as Karis Levert. But then from a defensive perspective, no, you're not giving up world beaters. If you have to surrender both Levert and did we in that deal, but you are unloading assets that could have been used to get you defensive talent. And you'll be actually unloading defensive talent. If you trade Jared Allen as part of that deal, which I think everyone would assume that you absolutely need to. So it, it does. And it, it doesn't make sense. I think what's key for them is, you know, the three of us are sitting here saying we're concerned about the defense. Uh, it'd be interesting to fast forward past free agency to see just what they're able to do on the margins with the mini MLE, um, are there any veterans that are going to, you know, quote unquote, ring chase with them? Can they get any defensive talent um, around them? Or are there other smaller scale deals that they can make? Because you have Torian Prince's salary. You have all the trade assets we just mentioned. And so if you're making the Bradley Beal move just as as your sole move, I probably wouldn't love it. But if it's as part of a bigger picture or a bunch of these other plays where you are upping the defensive talent around Kyrie and KD, then I think it becomes more interesting. Yeah, so putting all your eggs in one basket. It's kind of similar to what happened. Now, obviously they won like three championships, two or three championships. So it makes sense. But with the Warriors in 2019, when, uh, you know, just freakishly all the players are starting to get hurt in like the most crucial, you know, series. Uh, and it's just like, they had nothing else to go with because obviously they had no more money left in the tank. So it's kind of like with two, you know, injury written stars, like, do you really want to risk that? And, and not have any depth. Like, and that's my thing. Like, I think there's a cheaper way of going about getting the third score, which we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. But uh, Noe, are you are you all in on the Bradley Beal sweepstakes, uh, sweepstakes for Brooklyn? No, I actually don't like it. Um, I think that they, they should probably go around building debt like you guys were just talking about. Um, I think another thing that's really important to consider here is we don't know what this NBA season is going to look like as far as the schedule goes, right? Like you already have two guys, well, obviously Kevin Durant coming back from an injury, a major injury, and then Kyrie's had his history. So, and in a, in a season where it could be shortened and we could be playing lots of back-to-backs or lots of four and five, you know, it's that is going to take a big factor in it to me. You know, you're, you're going to, these guys are not, even in a normal 82-game season on a regular spread-out schedule, maybe resting every back-to-back anyways, now, you know, you look at a more compressed season and a more compressed schedule, what does that mean as far as how they're missing games and playtime? And that said, I don't think you need a Bradley Beal caliber score on this team. I think really what you should focus on is is building depth. You know, they can find a third score at a much cheaper price, I think, than, than what they would have to give up for Bradley Beal. And I do think that their their priority could definitely be building some defensive depth if that's if, if they're wanting to make. Because come playoff time, you know, hopefully both of those guys are healthy and they can carry the offense more than enough. You know, and a third guy doesn't have to be a really potent score. Like if you can get, I don't know, 18 out of your third score, you know, if, and you got KD and Durant, you're probably doing just fine. Um, especially if you were able to build, you know, some defensive depth and, and – 
get through the regular season and get through the compressed schedule in a decent in a decent spot going into the playoffs. Yeah, it's I don't know. It's just I'm not really ready to just say yeah they need a, a third star because we don't even know what they look like right now. Like it, that's why it's just all it is is speculation. We have really nothing to go by with with the Kyrie and, and uh, KD duo. I really think they should give it a college try. And like Dan mentioned, I mean, if the Wizards are looking to trade Beal, because, yeah, I know they've been saying all the right things, but maybe it's just as for leverage and and trying to get his price up, which is is fair to do. Um, who's to say that Beal's traded before the trade deadline, you know? Maybe, maybe they try to, you know, it seems like Beal and Wall do want to play with each other. Like, genuinely, they want to try it out. So it would be insane for the Wizards to to just trade him, but I believe Beal has at least three years left on his deal. Is that correct, Dan? He has two. Um, I think he'll be a free agent in 2022 right now. Okay. Um, that gotcha. might be a player option, so it's three. But the gotcha. one point, not even interject, that I like that you made is it probably works out in the Nets' favor if the Wizards, and even like let's look at the Pelicans with Drew Holiday, if they decide, hey, let's wait to see if we can figure out these futures midseason. Because like you said, uh, they need to give this or they should want to give this core a try. And I, I wanted to see them with Kenny Atkinson before they made any major changes, which is why I kind of think that they are going to lean towards do something seismic before next year. But if you maybe you just can't because there's not the names out there, I think that benefits them because, yeah, there's a chance that Dinwiddie and Levert aren't as valuable because maybe the fit with KD and Kyrie aren't as clean, but you do get a better feel for what you actually need and whether, you know, does does a does Bradley Beal scoring like is it worth both Lavert and Dinwiddie? I would probably say in the playoffs maybe, but you're dealing with Dinwiddie, Lavert, Kyrie, and KD, all of whom's greatest strength is creating shots for themselves, which is what Bradley Beal is going to do. He's just a fantastic player. It just feels like there's so much overlap with what they already have, where he's not the guy I would necessarily consolidate into, unless again maybe the price comes down or you play out half the season and you're like, well, this isn't working, and we need like we need Bradley Beal to come in and like really just shake us up. So you actually bring on a great point, which is, you know, perfect transition. Uh, if they don't get Beal, you know, there's a, there's plenty of names out there and they're actually what I was saying before we start recording, there's some cheaper, some cheaper names out there that they can, uh, that they can acquire. So if they don't get Beal, Noe, who, who would you think would uh, be the best third score or just third option in general? I guess he doesn't have to necessarily be the third score, but maybe third best player. Uh, who do you look for the Nets uh, to acquire this offseason? And I, I think they, the best case scenario for them is probably leaving things as is for a little bit, seeing kind of what you have. I think the thing, the thing to, to to know here is the Nets have to set a realistic expectation for themselves and their players, right? Because um, I don't think that this first season for this for for the duo, the, the star duo here, should be a championship or bust season, right? Because KD's coming off the big injury. It is kind of be it's going to be a weird season with the schedule. I I think that the thing to do would be pay would 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 be to have some patience. Now now of course with Kyrie on the roster and like Dan mentioned earlier, the combustibility factor is always going to be there and real. And you know maybe they don't want to take any chances with not having them happy and not you know. And them not feel like they're going into win now mode, right? Because I don't think that they're going to be. I think that this first season will probably be too soon. That said, you know, I don't, I don't know where the Nets, you know, feel. Dan, do you know? Do they do, do the Nets feel like this is a, a win now season? Like, 
Do they feel like it's championship or bust for them this year? I think they have to. And it's not just the fact that they got rid of Kenny Atkinson or let him leave, I think really proves that. And look, you have Kyrie and Kevin Durant, I would say two more years before free agency. Like there's no, it's like a Kawhi Leonard, Paul George situation where we don't think they'll leave because we, they chose to be there, but they're going to be free agents in, in two years. And so that window is finite. Even if they stay like, you know, Katie's getting up there in age, he's coming off an Achilles injury. So they could maybe look at this year, more long-term because even if Kevin Durant is going to be Kevin Durant again, you have to assume it takes him a while to get there, uh, but it's absolutely win now for them, which is why I would think that even if it's not over the off season, that's when they'll probably look at doing something substantial. And I think if kind of as Lance pointed out, it maybe Beal's the right fit in time, but there are cheaper options out there for them to explore that would make more sense, particularly on defense when just viewing this roster from afar and seeing what they need most. Okay, so I know you mentioned Drew Holiday, which is not a name I thought of, and that's actually a great choice because I believe he has a is does he have one more year in a player option or is he has two years in a player option? One yeah. in a player option. So he might so I don't know if he's gonna opt in. He might want that one more big contract. But hey, if the Nets are just gonna go all offense and no defense, I have someone for him. Just look no further than the Chicago Bulls. Zach Levine. <laughs> Dude, that was I mean, hey, you want to lean in all the way to no defense and you just want explosive scoring? There you go. And, I mean, he's still got a few years left. And I don't even – he's not even getting paid as much as, say, someone like Beal. I mean, eh, there you go. There's your uh, quick fix for your third score. But defense, no defense. It's okay. But That's ironically probably his best role, too, would be – come be the Nets' third scorer, but like that's, you know, he's substantially worse on defense than Karis LeVert and Spencer Dimley. So whoever you give up is like, you know, I'm, I am curious if they look at, like I said, like instead of hitting a home run, like maybe they aim for a double. Um, Patrick Beverly, like someone is a fourth best player. Like Patrick Beverly would be great for this team. Uh, Aaron Gordon, they need help at the four desperately. And so can you build something around Spencer Dimwitty, another smaller salary? Do you, need, do you even need to give up Spencer Dimwitty in that deal? Like what if it's, you know, uh, Torian Prince and a first round pick. And then one of your prospects, I don't, I don't think the magic will want Jared Allen, but like those types of names where players drew holiday, I think by far and away would be the best fit. But as you just talked about, he's going to be a free agent. And so do you want to pay him like, let's say four years and a hundred million dollars after this season? I don't, I don't know if you do, you have so much money tied up in Kevin Durant and Kyrie. And unlike Bradley Beal, Drew is one on the wrong side of 30 now, I believe. And two, he's not like very clearly a top 20 player. Like he could be in a given season, but probably not as your third option. So that would be the route I would go if I were them. Even like, you know, Miles Turner. I know they're married to DeAndre Jordan, but like if you cobble together an offer for Miles Turner would be great. You need someone. Yeah, you don't want them to be useless on offense, but you need someone to anchor your defense. And you just don't have that right now because like you've said already, Lance, it's not DJ and it doesn't seem like they want it to be Jared Allen. So you need to go out there and find that someone. And particularly on the wings, I would say right now, Kevin Durant is their best wing defender. Like that's, that's a problem. Once upon a time, you know, he, in in the warrior system, he was actually a... <laughs> post Achilles though. It's like, you don't yeah. want to saddle him with those assignments and you don't no. want to see Tori and Prince on them anymore. Like that's, I at this point, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but do you think he'll play more at the four than anything this year? I think he should just, or at least defend the four more than anything this year, just because it feels like I've talked about this with, and I think others have with Clay Thompson, where it's like, it makes sense to maybe guard bigger players now, because in theory, they're probably slower. And so like, 
you know, even certain teams, like if you go up against Dallas, like what, like Kevin Durant should maybe be defending Kristaps Porzingis at that point. Um, just as someone who's going to be more of a pick and pop option, isn't going to be running around a ton. So I am interested to see how they use him defensively, but I would agree with you. I think if we look back and positions are just so cloudy and borderline pointless at this stage, but if we look back fast forward, I would say he ends up, if not logging a majority of minutes, defending a majority of his minutes against opposing fours. Yeah, I just, like you said, post Achilles, I, I I really don't know what to expect from Durant at this point um, and, and say he's not going to be like an all-NBA player anymore, which, I mean, he probably will be if Russell Westbrook was one last season, so. <laughs> I just, I don't know what he's going to look like. I will, and I think, uh, maybe, you know, I alluded to this before, but like, even the version of Kevin Durant who's just catching and shooting over guys is probably still a top 20 player at worst. And so I think you could rest on that. And then you look at Wesley Matthews and Rudy Gay, and I don't want to say we've turned a corner and how players are recovering from Achilles injuries, but those are two guys who have gone on to have fairly impactful tenures after their prime following those types of injuries. And so I would think that's encouraging, um, especially because Kevin Durant is better than not just them, but anyone who suffered this injury, like Kobe Bryant was not even, he was playing out of his mind at the time, but he was not like, he was not Kevin Durant, maybe ever, but definitely at the time of his injury, he certainly wasn't Kevin Durant. Yeah. And, uh, speaking of injuries, uh, the next gentleman I'd like to talk about, um, I, I think his stock went up a little bit during the bubble, especially considering that, like we mentioned earlier, that all his teammates, all his star teammates were not playing and, you know, the Nets still fought pretty hard considering that there was no reason for them to even be be there, honestly, because they were just going to be a sacrificial lamb to whoever they played in the first round. But Karis LeVert, I'm curious because I keep seeing his name floated in these trade um, talks. And mostly, I mean, he is a really good uh, guard. And at the same time, you know, his contract does kind of add up to help make these trades happen. But what exactly is his value right now, Dan? What do you think that is? <laughs> I... Th- He's a really good from scratch creator for himself. Like he shot, I think above 40% on pull-up threes or something for, there was something ridiculous. And I think he's really developed nicely as a passer. Like he's made some complicated reads when he's going downhill. The issue with that. And then when you're looking at his actual value, I think to have him, um, you do, you are concerned with injuries when you look at his track record, but I think to have him on a three year, $52.5 million deal, it makes him one of the best bargains in, in the NBA right now. So you look at all that and then you try and apply it to the nets and like, I don't necessarily know what his value is to Brooklyn. It might be as like coming off the bench and doing the heavy lifting for units that have one or neither of Kyrie and Kevin Durant. Like that seems as if that'd be the best fit for this team. When you look at his value around the league, it's it feels like he could be more useful to other teams relative to the Nets just because when you have someone who's best with the ball in his hands and has that level of table setting for others, um, you don't necessarily view him as a complimentary piece. But he's also at this weird stage where He's 26. And so like is a rebuilding squad really going to view him as the answer? The you know, we're talking about the Wizards and Beal. That's a perfect example. Do they view Karis Levert as an asset? He's just in that awkward age group where it's yeah, he kind of fits any timeline, but do you want him to be the face of a rebuild? Does it help that he's under a contract for three years? I think it does. I do think in the end, he is someone who can anchor a blockbuster trade. And I think the best way to put it would be if you said, Would you do Karis Levert for Victor Oladipo straight up? I wouldn't do it if I was Brooklyn. And so like, that's the level of asset that I think you could even be 
be working with is that he's going to get you or should get you someone who is better than what you project Victor Oladipo to be next season. Yeah, and and as you said, I mean, his contract is very team-friendly. So worst-case scenario, they don't trade him, and they just get another chance to trade him because his contract will just match up pretty well for any team, you know. But yeah, I also look at it as if you're going to trade it, trade him to a, like you said, a rebuilding team, you'd probably just have to pair it with the first round pick because why else would that team want him? Because he's already, I, I guess it's safe to say he's in his prime. Is that is that a fair to assume? It's weird because it's like his age suggests that he's there or just about to be there. But when you look, so he's played four seasons and he hasn't even played 215 games in the regular season. So it's like, and then he has the one, this is like the one year where he really like played at the near star level. I think he was tracking there in 2018, 2019. Um, we talk a lot about what D'Angelo Russell did, but he was the Nets best player before Levert. Um, he was the best player before he suffered his injury. And so I, I think you have to say he's closer to there's, I would say there's not a lot of upside with him is that you're probably looking at last year's version of Levert, if not slightly better. Whereas if you were to invest in someone younger, you could talk yourself into being like, well, there's really like no limit to where he's going, but I think Karis Levert is clearly closer to his his apex than not. Pretty much the perfect way to put it. I just, man, I don't know if I don't know if they should trade him. I really think they should keep him and just have him for depth because, like, we're going to talk about in a little bit. There's really not much else, you know, the Nets can do on the bench in terms of uh, creating. So I think he'd be perfect for that uh, situation. Mm-hmm. It's just I know he was a he was a Kenny Atkinson guy, so I don't know if you know if he'd still be there if he wants to, if he wants to get out, but we'll see. It does feel like there's we talked or I at least was mentioning overlap before. Like I don't know if you need both him and Spencer Dinwiddie, and so like maybe that's the like can you swing something where it's you keep Levert and still make an impact acquisition? Like if you can, Aaron Gordon's the name I mentioned before. Like if you can use. And I don't know if this is too high a price. I would say it's not just because he's about to enter free agency. But if you can use Spencer Dinwiddie and Filler to get Aaron Gordon, like so now you've improved the defense of your team, improved, I would say, the depth of your team just because Gordon's a better fit without giving up what is your third best player right now. And in a vacuum, if we wanted to say Karis Levert, is Karis Levert ceiling third best player on a title contender? I, I think that would be fair to say. It's just I actually feel like he might be less valuable to Brooklyn as long as you have all four of these guys there with KD, Kyrie, and Dimwitty, because their skill sets are just, or their strengths at least, are so similar. Yeah, I I agree. The one gripe I have about, you know, all these trade talks, I still don't understand how they're just going to trade Jared Allen away. I just, I know you don't really want to pay centers big money, but I just think he's a very positive piece to this team and the whole DeAndre Jordan thing that we'll get into, it just it still perplexes me. It's funny that we've gone from is Jared Allen going to end up shooting a ton of threes to oh the Nets need to trade Jared Allen before they have to you know pay him twelve million dollars a year in an extension. And look, part of that is you mentioned why would you get rid of him? Because I don't know that DeAndre Jordan's I would he's not immovable, but when you have basically three years and thirty million dollars left on his deal, let's say Jared Allen costs you between 12 and 15 in his next deal. Now all of a sudden you're investing 22 to $25 million in those two players at the center position. And it's like, that's not in today's NBA. It's not the smartest use of resources. And I'm, I'm pro players just getting paid, but from a team's perspective, I don't think anyone, there are very few bigs that I think you want to, or positions 
um, that you want to funnel $25 million a year into and looking at your, even your top guy. And so if you're just combining that with Allen and Jordan and that's your center rotation, I don't know how good you feel about that, particularly because neither of them is matchup proof when you're looking at some of the teams that they could end up facing in the playoffs. I agree. It's just, as we've seen, this Nets team has kind of built a culture from the ground up and has literally, and I get it. I mean, you get KD and Kyrie, you do whatever it takes and you risk it, but it's just for years and years and years, this was a feel-good story. Oh, look what they're doing after the the totally disgusting debacle with Boston with all the stuff they gave up. And, you know, they, they built it from the ground up without having any real draft picks and they traded for other, you know, late draft picks and whatnot. And just... I mean, we're going to see most of those players off of this roster. I mean, that's how quick the NBA turns on a dime. It's just insane to me that there's really not that much patience. And I mean, we are a microwave society. I think we expect results right away. But it's just, it's kind of sad to me that the Brooklyn Nets, even though, yes, they might, I don't know if they're going to win a title, but they might at least go to a conference finals. But yet they sacrifice so much in doing so, if that makes sense. And it's, it's weird because they haven't even done it yet. Like they had so much, they still have so much of the talent in place, like from those feel good teams under Atkinson, like Joe Harris, Spencer Dinwiddie, uh, Karis LeVert is one of them too, but it's just, there's going to be Jared Allen as well, but there's inevitably going to be that opportunity cost. We've already seen it where Deandre Jordan's being prioritized over Jared Allen. And we're all just assuming that I would say at least two of Levert, Dinwiddie, and Allen are on different teams to finish next season. That would just be my uneducated guess right there. And so that's where the it didn't cost you like a ton of your assets to actually bring in Kyrie and KD, but the overhaul it's done to your behind the scenes um, operations at least, and then what you feel is like inevitable or unavoidable at this point, it is kind of mind blowing. And you mentioned like the the lack of longevity in the NBA now. The average title window just feels like it's for a team that's actually has a title window feels like it's two years maybe maybe two and a half years might be the average at this point yeah it's almost like and forgive me for this but it's almost like the warriors they they went on a war path and now like people are legit talking about oh i don't know about the warriors i don't even think they're real contenders and, and all it took was for them to be out of the game for one one season oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and no one and no one's like really respecting them as like legitimate contenders Dude, but like you okay so because th- this is something like for the I give Lance credit on this one. For the last couple of years, he keep, he's been he, well. It's been three or four years now, telling me like keep an eye out for the Nets, keep an eye out for the Nets, and I always kind of shot it down and you know never paid much attention. And then of course it kind of all started coming together. But do y'all do either one of y'all feel like it was going to eventually lead into what would have been a true championship window for them, or was the the the, the move to take Kyrie and to take KD and almost blow apart the culture and really like. Dan said, in the end up with losing a lot of that talent that that got them to where they were, you know, two seasons ago or, or last season. Is is it worth it? Is it the is it the right move? Is it the move that gives you the best chance to win a title? I don't know if we can answer that question now, just because they haven't even played together yet. Um, it's Kevin Durant's injury complicates everything. I don't think we'd be having this discussion right now if they signed Kevin Durant when he was healthy. And it this is the question any team that signed him was going to have to to ask is in a vacuum screw screw the culture and everything like it's just you you get Kyrie you get Kevin Durant a chance to have two top 10 players on the same team but everything's compounded just by Kevin Durant's injury and so it it all really hinges on what he looks like we know what we're really going to get from Kyrie yeah he's coming back from a shoulder injury he's had knee stuff 
you get 50 to 60 games of him every season. That's what you can count on. And you know, he's going to be a monster in the playoffs. If he's healthy, it just comes down to Kevin Durant. Like he's this person you signed for the best player on a title contender. And I think if you thought there was even a 10% chance that he's still going to be that player post injury, you can at least justify this decision because we were just talking about how finite windows are. That's also how rare legitimate windows are. We, I think the, let's look at the Utah jazz who can be like on paper, um, they can be like an analytics dream or like they could be a, a basketball hipsters, like fun dark horse pick to, to contend for a title out West. But has that window ever really opened? Like it really hasn't. And so they're probably as close as they've been. Um, if they had a healthy boy on Bogdanovich, maybe, you know, maybe we're talking about something different. We'll see what happens this off season, but a team that's that good that has spent so heavily, that's sort of, you know, done so many things, right. When you look at um, trading on draft night for Rudy, um, Rudy Gobert, uh, the the Donovan Mitchell deal, uh, Denver giving up both those players is hysterical. But anyway, uh, so they've done so many things right, but their window has never really opened. And so if you have a 10% chance to legitimately open your window and you believe that Kevin Durant post Achilles does that, I probably subscribe to Daryl Morey's process there where it's like you're almost obligated to do it. But again, because we're talking about this in the context of the injury, um, it's it's just impossible to know. And we still have to, you know, we still have to see like, the other like changeover too is how many players are they actually going to get rid of? We know Atkinson's gone, but how does the Steve Nash hire work out? How big of a voice does Jacques Vaughn still have? I think Lance made the good point of that. He's probably going to be like the, the heart and soul of their defensive coaching right now. There are just so many unknowables with this team, but, but I think it's a decision in hindsight that you still make because Kevin Durant and Kyrie, as you currently have them are going to bring you closer to a title than that roster you had in place. And look, we could be talking about them maxing out or near maxing out D'Angelo Russell right now over four or five years. And like, that's then a completely, that thrusts you into a completely different trajectory where we're probably criticizing them for not letting him go or something along those lines. Yeah. I mean, I think I was just going to say they kind of, I don't want to say they lucked into it, but I mean, the Nets practically lucked into the sign and trade, you know, deal with the uh, KD. And as far as if I would do the deal, I, I got to say, yes. I mean, the only part of I'd, I'm okay with the KD injury. I'm more worried about the Kyrie persona and not holding up and, and things of that nature and messing up the locker room. And I know, you know, he's since come out and apologized and, and, and all this, but I, we saw what he did with Boston and how he essentially just called out all those young dudes that end up going to the conference finals, you know, twice, one with them once without, so it's kind of like, I don't really have that much high hopes for Kyrie. I do understand that he makes big plays and big moments. But if I'm given the, the keys of the city for this guy, I don't know if I trust him that much. But yeah, if it comes with KD, you just have to do it. Now, the third wheel, the DeAndre Jordan, you know, I that is where I'm like, okay, guys, what do y'all see in this dude? I know y'all were on Team USA with him, and he's funny, goofy, and all that. Like, a lot of people like him. But we already have a stud in Jared Allen. So it's like, what's the point of paying this guy a three-year deal? You know, I think it's like three-year, 30-something million. What's the point of doing that? We could we could shore up our bench and make sure y'all are okay and y'all can rest, you know. But, yeah, that's all I got to say about that, Noe. I don't want to get on my Kyrie soapbox because that's another pod. <laughs> I think that probably justifies the DeAndre Jordan stuff is that I don't – do you want – I've thought about this in the context of the Clippers too, is like Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, like aren't primary locker room voices. And I don't know that Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving 
are either. And so that's where DeAndre Jordan kind of comes in. That seems like an awfully large price tag for him. I would have just preferred to have given Kyrie and KD to full max um, rather than save money to fit DeAndre Jordan in that four-year mid-level spot. But if they thought that like they needed his leadership in the locker room to balance it out, I kind of understand that. But that was just like, you go and you find your Jared Dudley. You go and you find like your Channing Fry, like those cheap guys who don't need to play rather than shelling out. DeAndre Jordan, by all means, is very likable. Um, but four years and $40 million for a position that you already kind of had sewn up for much cheaper for two years of that, uh, that looms as questionable. Even when you say, well, look, you know, Kyrie and KD took less and it's like, yeah, well, you know what? There's a chance that Kyrie and KD don't even finish their deals out in Brooklyn. Like they might leave before that fourth season and DeAndre Jordan's going to finish this deal out. I don't know if it's going to be in Brooklyn, but he doesn't have an opt out. So yeah, that was, um, that's the, I don't know if you want to call it, it's contractual baggage or a stipulation that I think you can question. But again, I would come back to if it gets you Kevin Durant, you probably do it. So put it like this. DeAndre Jordan is the turtle from entourage of the Brooklyn Nets. That's what I look at him as. He's there because his two best friends are succeeding. They happen to be friends and that's why he's there. Maybe that's crazy for me to think or I'm, a, I'm an ass for saying that. But I just I don't understand it. I do. But from a basketball standpoint, it doesn't make sense. But <laughs> yeah, like maybe the reverse turtle because DeAndre Jordan had like a good career before this, and like Turtle went was there because of his friends, and then went and had like a pretty good character yeah. arc. So he's like the reverse turtle a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, and the thing about DeAndre, he still has explosive moments, so it looks like he can still play ball. But when it comes to shoring up the defensive side, and obviously we know how important a defensive center is nowadays. I mean, if you. If you can't play defense, you'll be like Ennis Cantor. Yeah, your numbers will look good, but you won't really play that much in the playoffs. And that's where it gets sticky. Do or does Kate does Katie Kyrie do they see it like on the court, like, oh, well, maybe this wasn't a good idea? Do you think they'll be able to admit that they are wrong and and I guess whisper in Nash's ear and be like, hey, maybe we shouldn't play him as much? Or do you think that's a pipe dream right there, Dan? My guess would be pipe dream i think the it might matter more of like is nash going to be empowered enough to pull deandre for jared allen when the situation calls for it or will they even downsize like you know kevin durant at the five lineups i'm a sucker for small ball units so i, I think it probably matters more like what type of power um, nash has over that decision making where is it going to irritate deandre Kyrie, and kd if jordan is for some reason playing less than Jared Allen. And look, I'm not trying to say DJ doesn't have value. He's a better passer than Jared Allen. Um, and they do a lot of the same things on defense, but Allen is definitely more switchable. If you're looking at having to draw someone outside the paint or even like sort of his help defense at this point around the rim, but it's, it's going to come down to like how much, you know, does Deandre Jordan have a number of minutes that he has to play to keep Kyrie and Katie happy? Like, is that an actual conversation we, we, we need to have? I have no idea. He was already paid. So I would think that it, it shouldn't matter to that degree. At the same time, though, I do think you bring up a fair point where it's I don't foresee Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving ever being like, well, you need to bench DJ or Jared Allen's better. Uh, but it could create this awkward situation where if the Nets deem it better to move forward with Allen or a different look, um, is this organization Nash or even Sean Marks? Like, is, what if he wants to move DJ to make one of these upgrades um, because his money fits somewhere else? Are, is that something that this Nets organization has the flexibility to do? And right now I have zero idea. Yeah, the, and and you know what? I'm also all about the players getting paid, but at the same time, that's a double-edged sword of the, quote, player empowerment, unquote, era, you know? I mean, that's just how it is. I mean, you give the players 
so much onus on the team building aspect. It's kind of like, what do you expect? Of course, they're going to use their influence to to get their way. I mean, and like you said, the Nets really don't have, you know, the respect or the influence, not just in the league in general to like really maybe make some of these plays where it's like, no, you know what? I know you're a star player, but trust me on this, you know? So it's, it's kind of a, a shaky situation going forward. And we want to speak about, you know, good relations and influence uh, there's, so there's one player that supposedly has uh, played a big role in, in getting um, Kyrie to Brooklyn, and uh, that's Spencer Dinwiddie. I honestly don't know if if he should be included in uh, these um, how, uh, these trade proposals. I really think they should just keep him as a security blanket for when Kyrie gets hurt in the regular season. Um, but what do you see his role as, Dan? like on this team, if he stays, it feels like it's similar to the Karis Levert type role where it's like, maybe you do like, he's your sixth man or he's your seventh man. And like those two are leading the units without KD or Kyrie or just with, with one of them. And like you said, he's going to be more important on the nights where Kyrie is not playing just as someone who can be that primary facilitator. And, um, that's, what's an interesting element too, is he recruited Kyrie to get here. Um, Kevin Durant and Karis LeVert also kind of have like a pre-existing relationship. And so it's like, how do they feel about actually trading those guys? And I think the answer winds up being that you, you don't move to me. You just wouldn't move regardless of who you're getting. The goal should be not to move both Dinwiddie and Karis LeVert. I don't know that they have these obvious roles, but um, when all four of them are together, but they're both so valuable when looking at guys who can, efficiently create their own shot and then also jumpstart the offense. Uh, you don't want to get rid of two of those because you do need someone to do the heavy lifting um, beyond Kyrie and KD and just consolidating that into one other star, especially if it's not a Bradley Beal type. Like if you go lower on the food chain, like a Drew Holiday or a Victor Oladipo, like you're, you're losing something offensively there. So I, I, again, I would be in favor. This sounds like a broken record of them sort of playing out this season with Dinwiddie Lavert a little bit before making the move. If I had to argue or pick which one's more valuable between the two, I think I'd still just default to Levert, if only because he's already locked up on his contract and he's a little bit bigger, so that's going to help you a little bit more defensively. But but I think Dinwiddie could end up being maybe the driving force of a second-unit offense since the Nets may not want to bring both Levert and Dinwiddie off the bench. Uh, that's a lot of firepower coming off the bench, like maybe even in too much, you could argue. And so if you're going to start Levert just because it's easier to put him on the wings with KD rather than having, you know, Dinwiddie and Irving in the backcourt, because you, you kind of need to start Joe Harris too, if he comes back, then you're super small. So he might be the guy who ends up just coming off the bench. And then he's going to be the one that provides balance to the lineups that only have one or none of the stars involved in them. So I'm going to mention this team because it, it kind of relates to what I'm going to bring up with Brooklyn, but the Clippers, they're infamous. It's been reported that they really didn't have the continuity. I mean, we saw it, right? They didn't really play their star players together in the rotation. They didn't have a lot of these lineups that played in the playoffs play together that much. Obviously, there had to be rest with Kawhi, even though he really didn't rest that much compared to previous years. But, you know, the, the narrative is there. Um, but with Brooklyn, we can't just automatically sit here and say, yeah, they're only going to be worried about the playoffs, right? Because we have to build something. Because like you said, they've never even – played together, at least, you know, from a professional standpoint. And I really think having Spencer Dinwiddie there is going to help shore up those situations as uh, where Kyrie's probably out and they're going to have somebody 
uh, have to have somebody that can win them games in the regular season because I just don't see them as – I mean, the East is – I know Noe kind of was commenting saying that the East is a cakewalk pretty much. It, it, compared to the West, it kind of is, but the top-tier teams are pretty strong, you know. We just saw Miami, and they're not even a top tier team, fifth seed in the, in the league or in the in the East, take uh, the champions to uh, six games with the injured roster. But yeah, the, the Nets are not guaranteed a top three seed in the East. And for positioning purposes for seeding, I really think it's important that they they do uh, shore up those 50-50 wins. You know, they 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 can't afford to to fall like fifth seed or so. Because I think matchups are going to be everything in the playoffs. But long-winded way of saying that they need continuity. And I really do hope that they just stick with what they have. You know, I'm sure that there's going to be a trade. I just hope it's not putting all their eggs in one basket and trading all their depth for one player that may or may not, you know, get them over the hump when really it could just probably make them a top three team in the East. Um, But this player, this next player, I think is a very pivotal uh, point in the roster. Um, He looked really good last year. I think, I believe I looked up that he was the only player to average a double-double in the playoffs, albeit, obviously, he was only in uh, the first round. But Joe Harris, I'm hearing a lot of noise about this guy, Dan. I'm hearing, because I believe his cap hold is like 13 or 14 million. I'm hearing that he might get more than his cap hold. I'm hearing like 15 mil at least. What do you say about that? So his cap hold is 14.6, I think, and it would not shock me if he got more than that. And that's wild because they're only going to be like four, maybe five teams with cap space, but he's the player you want on every single team because of his skill set. Like he doesn't, we've seen in Brooklyn that when he's given the freedom, he can attack closeouts, he can throw some passes on the move, but you just need him running around off the ball and he compliments everyone and he'll, he'll compete on defense. He's not the best defender, but you can get some minutes at the three out of him. And so if you're the Nets, That's money to me that you have to pay him because you have so many of these guys who operate on the ball. If you want to have guys who compliment them and and you want to prioritize spacing and just flow, he's super important. But, you know, you're the Hawks and you're trying to make the playoffs and you just want shooting around Trey Young because you were the worst three-point shooting team in the league last year. Does it hurt to throw Joe Harris like $15 million? I don't know that it does. There could also be teams that are more win now or maybe they're they're willing to give up a ton in addition to paying Joe Harris in a a sign-and-trade. I think the Nets would probably be foolish to go that route unless they're getting a small ransom because they need him so badly. But it would not shock me if looking at the Knicks, the Hawks, and maybe I'll go with Detroit. I feel like Charlotte won't, but like those three teams are the ones I would watch with him or I could very easily see them like going over the top to a number where maybe Brooklyn isn't all that comfortable with because they're already a projected taxpayer. I would default toward you have to just pay him whatever it takes, unless someone's going to, you know, unless we get ridiculous where it's like Joe Harris is making $20 million a year over three years or, or something along those lines. But he is one of the few free agents that I think is going to get paid in spite of the cash poor market that's awaiting the NBA and free agency. Yeah. Cause nowadays, I mean, I know that we said this years ago about positionless basketball, you know, Brad Stevens, that's what he was talking about years ago. And now it's actually coming to fruition. Like we're seeing it now, obviously with the Houston Rockets, what they did traded, you know, they're, they're only really obvious player at center, you know, for wings and, and, and players that can kind of guard multiple positions. But Joe Harris is the other kind of player that just creator, mover, set shooter. And there's really not that many players, at least 
that I can think of on the Nets roster like that. At least not players that can do it consistently like him. I know they have a bunch of younger players, but I really don't see those other younger players having much say in offense uh, when it boils down to it. And the Nets are, like you said, the window is, is now, really. Uh, and I really don't see them just saying, you know what, we can't pay for it because there's really not another way for them to, uh, for, at least from what I gather, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the Nets are already $30 million over the projected cap of, what is it, $109 million? That's projected for next for this offseason. Yeah. So in my there's a lot of stuff up in the air here, but with their um draft pick hold, and I'm putting assuming I think Garrett Temple is an option and Harris is cap hold in there, I have them right now um at closer to 160 million dollars against oh, a wow, which is a hundred and nine million dollar cap. So um that number goes lower if you don't have Joe Harris there. But let's you know if Joe Harris gets fifteen million dollars a year. Um, your pathway to having a hundred and sixty million dollar payroll, which would be close to thirty million dollars of the luxury tax, is is pretty straightforward. Which is why I think a lot of people are like, they're going to do something to get off of Torian Prince's twelve point three million dollar salary. Like it feels fate to complete. They'll do something like that, which is a terrible look for them because they just signed him to that two year extension. And so if you're not viewing him as either a core piece or at least someone that you can use as a salary anchor in a trade that's bringing back value, should you end up just salary dumping him? That That's a terrible look for them. Yeah, because, I mean, you've already made the move by going all in by signing KD coming off of uh, an Achilles injury. So it's kind of like you've already made a, a huge risk there, so you might as well just keep it going and piling it on. But I just don't see the logic in letting Harris go and then not getting any near the caliber player in return if you do sign someone. I guess – because do they still have the MLE they can use? Is that something they can use? They should have the uh, – this would be another question. Like, I'm assuming that they'll spend it, but they have the mini-mid level. I don't know how hard they're projecting they're going to be hit because of the um, coronavirus pandemic and what that's going to do to gate revenue specifically next season. Um, there are going to be teams that are going to be pocket shy this offseason free agency. I would think because you have Kyrie and KD that you need to spend whatever. But if you re-sign Joe Harris uh, – Maybe they don't use the mini MLE, um, or maybe they're saying, you know what, we can approximate Joe Harris for that. I think it's going to end up being like five or 5.7 million, whatever the mini MLE ends up being. I would argue you cannot approximate what he does just because the the NBA free agency pool, as I'm sure you've looked at, like it is caps lock rough this season. And, you know, is a, I'll use like, is Alec Burks, like how much of Joe Harris's value does he approximate? Can do a little bit more off the dribble, but he's not like, that functional shooter that's going to pinball around like, like a JJ Redick essentially. And so that's where you get into like these weird conversations where, yeah, maybe you can let Joe Harris walk and try and add another shooter. But like what, what shooter like is going to cost you only, let's say around $5 million. And if it's Alec Burks, I don't know if he replaces enough of what Joe Harris does. That's just one example um, though, to, to justify making that decision. I mean, that's, that's one example that I can't even really think of any other players that make sense financially and schematically for the Nets. The Tillman Fertitta decision would be to sign Marco Bellinelli and let Joe Harris walk. That's what he would do. I mean, I don't even know if Bellinelli could play a minute in today's NBA. Cause I don't think he could guard anybody, but man, I, yeah, I just don't see Harris leaving and you know what? Hey, they're just going to have to accept the fact that, in order to win in today's NBA, you got to pay up, and that's the reality of it all. I mean, I, I really don't have much else to say about that. It's just 
it, it would boggle the mind to see Harris uh, be let go. I, I I understand if they don't want to pay like twenty million a year, but I really don't see anyone doing that. But at the same time, you know, people the pay. Knicks have cap space, so let's not go that far. The Knicks, they're they're always the wild. Card yeah, the I was gonna say <laughs> Mozgov got a, a pretty hefty deal in the Wall Dang in the same offseason from the Lakers, so it's uh it's very possible. But I don't know. I, maybe the Knicks are looking to to get Chris Paul, so that eats up what like forty something mil of their cap space right there. What was yeah, and if they do it via trade, the cap space won't even matter as much. But yeah. I, I think I'm with you where it's the two teams that I think could be most aggressive in free agency are Atlanta and New York. And going that high for Joe Harris would be like, I, I think short, like short-sighted is even being too nice to say that because he's good, but he's not that good. And even $15 million probably winds up being an overpay. But because he can, he's just that universal fit um, that you don't even need to imagine what your team looks like in three years. You just know that Joe Harris will fit with it. Like that's really where his his value lies. And so if you're the Nets and you're claiming that you're trying to win now, the optics of letting him walk short of something that is, you know, 20 million like a year, I don't know what the number is that would make me say, you know what, it's all right that the Nets did that. Maybe if you get to like 17 million and the length matters too. Like if if you can sign Joe Harris for two years and 34 million, I do it just because it's only two years. I don't want to pay Joe Harris $17 million a year, but it's only two years we're talking three, four years, like that's where the things start to get ridiculous. So I don't know what the number is. I don't know what the contract terms are, but, but if you're the Nets, I think you hate to simplify it by just, you just need to pay to win. But like, you're at the point where like you have a really good player who's, who fits whatever you're doing. Like you, you have to pony up, like don't make the bucks decision of assuming that Malcolm Brogdon was a luxury that you could let walk away because I don't think Joe Harris is a, is a luxury. I think he's mission critical to what they're going to want to do next year. Yeah. He makes all the sense in the world uh, on that team. And, uh, I mean, he looked pretty good in the playoffs. I mean, considering they, he played against one of the better defensive teams in the league, uh, I, I think he held his own. So, yeah, I, I would look at it, even if they have to shell out 20 mil for one year, I, I mean, I know it's easy to count people's money, but... That's almost ideal if you're yeah. there. I mean, not for the tax, I guess, but I don't really care about spending billionaires' money. Yeah, like, that's not I, I, I think they're, they're not hurting, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think they'll be just fine. Uh, so... Uh, before we get out of here, Dan, uh, I just want to give you a moment to plug the many things you got going on. I'm sure you got something cooking over with NBA Math. You always have these these cool ratings and, and rankings going on. Uh, so tell me about any new ventures or any projects or, or pieces that you got in the works for Bleach Report, perhaps. Uh, yeah, so at NBA Math, uh, at NBA underscore math on Twitter, we're rolling out our crystal basketball rankings this year. So we're going team by team alphabetically. I think we're almost done. We're going to be on the Thunder tomorrow, but we ranked, um, we had a poll of writers and they ranked every player in the league, like according to scale. So we're doing team by team results and then there'll be a monster one that's coming out. That's really just always fun. Rankings are tough, but, uh, just interesting to see how different people view different players. Uh, I just have a ton of content coming out of Bleacher Report. It's we're, we're coming up to the draft. We're coming up to free agency. Uh, the content volume there is going to be all over the place. So you can check my Twitter feed for that. And then Hardwood Knox will continue to pump out podcasts and try to figure out a content plan as the off-season schedule decides to take shape. As we record this, there's still no start date to free agency, which is just incredible to think about because the season, as we record this, is supposed to be like six weeks away, basically. Yeah. So. <laughs> so this is the thing we've been doing at Culture Surfing. We've been doing the off-season pods and just having one guest come on each time. I'm afraid that we might just have to like shelve that and end up just talking about the rest of the teams because it's just – I'm like, there's no way that we can get out all of this before free agency doing that. No, you know? we, 
we ran into the same problem at Hardwood Knox. And look, Blue Wire, love Blue Wire Network, but like the higher ups there, they're not crazy when I do single team pods anyway, because the, the listens come down just because we're a league wide podcast. People, you know, they don't, I did a podcast that was 70 minutes long on the Charlotte Hornets. Like, you know, the market for that's finite. Um, but I like going deep into every team, but now all of a sudden it's like, these things are going to become so dated so quickly where we're going to try and squeeze in as many off season look aheads as we can. But like, before we know it, like it might be, an, it might be an instance where, okay, we did the Brooklyn nets look ahead before free agency, but now we're going to, maybe I'll try and squeeze in like the Chicago bulls after free agency, or you're going to have to start going by division that the timeline here has, I thought we were going to have until like mid January, which would have given us till December on all these off season previews. And now it's like, oh no, you need to move everything up a month. And that's tough to do. And and it's almost like it's almost like the NBA should just be, you know what? Let's speed this up. Let's just do the draft a week before. Maybe we should have done that and give them, you know, more time for the actual, you know, free agency and all that stuff. But it's just it just seems weird that it's it's being sped up so drastically. I do understand it from a financial point. And I do understand the players, I don't want to say gripe, but stance on Rest. It feels like it feels like maybe it's like if this were a negotiation where the NBA is putting out one, knowing the players will counter with another, and then you just wind up in the middle ground, which maybe is closer to MLK Day anyway. Um, I will say I think that based on their projections, I think they found out that having Christmas is like incredibly important. And that seems like the primary reason for the the speed update because they could maybe extend the season a little bit and then shorten next offseason and get back to a semi-regular schedule. Because they care about two things to me. It's 21, 22. They want to have a regular schedule. But I think they've also realized, um, based on the ratings, when they were you know at a time of the year where people are normally outside, even during the, the pandemic, like that didn't do them too well. And so you realize how important a day to yourself like Christmas is, where even if there's football on, people still view it as an NBA holiday. So they've established how important that is. But then, of course, the 21, 22 – I don't know what the date's going to end up being just because as you mentioned, the players are justifiably. So they're, they're providing pushback. I'm also not sure how many of the players are actually providing pushback because there are a bunch of teams that did not make the bubble. And there are a bunch of teams that, you know, even the, or a few teams that were only in the bubble for the eight games. And so like, they're probably itching to get back to work. It's the, if there, I'll say if there's a December 22nd start date, I would expect LeBron to be there for ring night. Christmas, and then maybe take like a four to six week vacation or something. He'll, <laughs> he'll, he'll do his uh, two weeks in Miami. I believe like yeah. he did with Cleveland. That's what he'll end up doing. And honestly, I don't blame him because it's just kind of abrupt to me. But my financially, you got to take care of the league. And and I mean, what is it? It's a 50, what is it? A 51-49 split. So it's really both sides are going to be hurting if there's no game. So Right. And yeah. these things are collectively bargained. I'm sure there are players that when they look at between how much of their salary is going to be escrowed, um, and then, you know, looking at taxes, obviously after all that, like they're going to be those who want to squeeze in more games because the things that we tend to forget is that if there are fewer games, like the players are not making as much money. And so there's that, there's the reduced salary in general, but knowing that you have to put then a higher percentage of your salary in escrow to maybe offset losses. Um, that's, I feel like there are a lot of news breaks to, still to come to this. Like we might like December 22nd might, maybe that is the start date, but there are just so many developments to come with this. It's, I'm sure myself, I'm sure you, I'm sure everyone just has not really even thought of like the the full scope of what's still to come with these negotiations between the the players union and the league. Yeah, as we mentioned earlier, the league flips on a dime. And uh right. Dan, you you and I, we could talk about for hours the complexity of just this insane 2020 year. And this is before we're recording this before the election. So speaking of crazy year, you know, there's a lot of uh 
implications riding on this election. And uh, safe to say, most of the people that listen to this pod, they're going for a certain person. And let's just say, Dan, we hope that person wins. And <laughs> as everyone listens to this, um, whatever happens, please be safe. Don't do anything rash, no matter who wins. And just, you know, stay rational. That's all I'm going to say. And once again, this is Lance Robertson, uh, Noe, signing out. And thank you once again, Dan, for coming on. We'll have to uh, have you on again soon before the season starts. Most definitely. Thank you for having me. All right. Y'all have a nice evening.